right. Well, hey, good evening, Summit Church. It's great to see you here tonight. My name is Andy, one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, as Josh said, we are kicking off the Advent series tonight. We are kicking off this Advent season this evening. And I love this. Uh, full, dis- full disclosure from the very beginning here, I love this season. I think it's phenomenal. I love everything about it, the, the music, the lights, the decorations, the trees. In fact, if you were to come over to my house, actually, if you were to come over to my house even before Thanksgiving, you would have already seen the Christmas tree up. You would see the lights on the house. Christmas music was already playing unashamedly. We just love it, and that's the way we roll. And if you have a problem with that, I'm really, really sorry, but we, uh, that's just how we are in the Metzger household. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just love this time of year and everything that's kind of caught up within it. In fact, just this past week, it was at our city group that uh, we were sitting around the dinner table and we began to share our favorite childhood Christmas memories. And I love that. I mean, I love hearing all the different stories. There was one family that's talked about uh, every year as children uh, at midnight, all of the kids would wake, uh, wait until midnight and at midnight... Santa would arrive at their house every year. And, you know, as soon as the clock struck 12, there was a, uh, the doorbell rang, and then all of a sudden they'd show up, and he was fully decked out, bearing presents and everything. It was incredible. Uh, another family talked about uh, how they uh, had this tradition where all of the siblings and all of the cousins would actually spend the night in the same house, sleeping in the living room in front of the Christmas tree, uh, with the challenge every year to see how long they could wait up, hoping to solve the mystery once and for all, is it Santa, or maybe is it our parents? And, uh, and, you know, you can imagine how that went every year. Eventually, they crashed, and then they would wake up in the morning with presents everywhere. Once again, the mystery not being solved. Well, you know, I love that. I can actually remember my favorite childhood Christmas memory because um, I was about seven, eight years old, and, uh, and I'm not sure if this still happens today. Maybe it does. I feel like we do almost all of our Christmas shopping online, so I would have no idea. But uh, back in the early, early 90s, um, I remember my parents going to Toys R Us to do some Christmas shopping for us, and uh, there was a large group of protesters there in front of the store, and, uh, and they were protesting. In fact, one of the protesters came up to my father and said, hey, hey man, let's make this a nonviolent Christmas this year. No toy guns, no toy weapons, let's keep it peaceful, all right? Which... If you knew my dad, uh, probably the nicest way to say this is, my dad just doesn't really enjoy people telling him what to do, and probably what would have been a nonviolent Christmas in our house with just like remote control cars and model airplanes actually then transformed the Metzger household into an arsenal of plastic weaponry. I mean, it was every, that's all he got for us. Instead of, I mean, that was literally all he got. We had the uh, rubber band shooters, and we had Nerf guns, and super soakers, and the little ping pong ball guns, and all that stuff, uh, and that's what our, our Christmas was like, not particularly as there was four young boys in our household. I mean, this was like, we are going to war. And we did. It was great. It was like one of the best Christmases ever. I still cherish that memory. I'm not sure it has anything really to do with my sermon tonight, uh, other, other than the fact that there seems to be some kind of difference. I don't know. Maybe this is just me. It seems to be some kind of difference, though, um, from child, between childhood and adulthood when it comes to Christmas. Something changes in the way that we view this season because as children, for some reason, we're able to just to kind of experience it. We, we just receive it for what it is. But then once you become an adult, you feel somewhat of this pressure to almost recreate or at least have your Christmas live up to a certain standard. 
I don't know if anybody else feels this, but there, there's just like this pressure that I feel to almost create, particularly when I sit around a table and hear everyone's almost magical childhood Christmas memories. It, it feels like there's, there's pressure to recreate the most nostalgic Christmas memory for my family and for others. And oftentimes I feel the pressure. I'm trying to often just walk this line and balance the tension between having the perfect amount of sentimental, the perfect amount of experiential, and the perfect amount, for those of you who are religious, the spiritual sides as well. Now, if that were not difficult enough, if you didn't feel enough pressure with that alone, on top of all of the things that you're hoping to see happen this season, we know by this point in our lives all of you are, are adults in the room. We know by this point in our lives, when you add all of the family into it, when you add the traveling, when you add the financial investment, the, uh, the emotional investment, the inv- inevitable stress and frustration and feelings getting hurt and crazy Uncle Bill saying something about the election that just sparks this huge debate and, all, and everybody's going through it. Man, we know at this point in our lives, it's just not going to go the way that we hope for it. It's just not going to go perfectly the way that we anticipate every year. And I'm not even trying to be the Grinch here. I love this season. I, I, I love it so much. But you know this. You know that it's almost impossible to make it through the holiday season this year without some level of disappointment, without some level of discouragement, without some level of sadness. And this, this, is, this is why we need Advent. This is why we need more than just a day or more than just a tradition of trees and presents and home alone marathons, as great as all of those things are. Instead, we need an entire season that will address the inevitable discouragement, the inevitable disappointment that we all feel at some point during this holiday season. In fact, here's what I know. I, I mean, I know that some of you are already there. Like, you're not even trying to fake it tonight. Like, some of you are already there. You're like, I'm over this, I'm stressed out, I'm frustrated, I'm not really in the Christmas mood. Others of you will likely get there soon. And so here's why I'm excited about tonight. Here, here's, why I'm, here's where even the good news this evening is we jump into Luke chapter 1 and 2. Look at these two chapters throughout our Advent season over the next several weeks. Here's what you're going to see. The men and the women that we encounter throughout these chapters, they knew what it was like to face disappointment. They knew what it was like to face disappointment, particularly in the areas of life that matters the most. In fact, they knew what it was like to face disappointment with God. Yet here's the thing. It was, it was in this season of doubt, it was in a season of great disappointment that something happened, something completely unexpected Something extraordinary, God spoke. In fact, not only did he speak, but he made a promise. And not only did he make a promise, but he actually delivered on a promise. And that, that is actually what Advent is all about. Like that, in a nutshell, is what Advent is all about. Like God making promises and God delivering on those promises. And that, I hope you'll see this evening. As we, as we begin this Advent series and we begin to jump into Luke chapter 1, you'll begin to see how Advent is meant not only to provide us with, with a hope and a tangible confidence as we go through the difficulties and the disappointments of life, but it's also meant to change us. Because for, for thousands of years... It's been radically changing men and women just like you, 
and it's meant to continue to do that today. Now, here's what we're going to do. Uh, hopefully, you have a Bible. I'm actually going to sit down tonight. I feel like uh, I thought about this a lot uh, last night as I was just uh, reading over this chapter of Luke chapter 1, and, uh, and even looking at it this morning. I feel like the best thing I can actually do this evening is just very simply walk through this Christmas story to, to just kind of teach it as simple as I can uh, and to be able to help you understand what's happening here in Luke chapter 1. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd really, really encourage you to grab one tonight. You, again, feel free to stand up, move around, grab one of those. You're going to want one of those in front of you. We're going to be looking at it a lot this evening. If you need someone to pass you one, that's totally fine. Yeah, I just feel like the, the best thing, I mean, there's not going to be a whole lot of clever teaching tonight. Um, I'm just going to walk through this with you. And hopefully you walk away this evening uh, a little bit more hopeful and a little bit more prepared to be able to face this Advent season together. So um, we're going to start in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Anne, and her name was Elizabeth. All right, let's just kind of stop and pause right there for a second. Uh, a few people that it, names are being mentioned here. First, there's Herod. Herod, this is, you've probably heard of Herod before. This is Herod the Great. And uh, man, if you're like ever interested in just kind of learning a little bit more about history or I don't know, maybe it's like if you want to nerd out on a Wikipedia article at some point this week at work, like this is what you should read about. Like go look up Herod the Great. We actually know more about Herod the Great almost than any other historical figure. This guy had so much written about him because on one hand, he was like a genius. He, he was an architect. He did all kinds of tremendous city planning in the first century, but he was also crazy. Like this guy was crazy. He was paranoid. In fact, he was so paranoid that people were trying to usurp the throne and take away his position that he ended up like killing like half of his family, like most of his sons, his brothers, nephews, all kinds of people. That's how crazy he is. So again, lunchtime reading at some point this week, all right? Herod the Great. In the days of Herod the Great, King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah, and his wife, his, her name was Elizabeth. All right, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that's what we're looking at tonight. And, uh, and Luke is kind of, Luke's our author here. Luke has put together this story for us. I love Luke. He's a medical doctor. And, uh, and I mean, he's super smart. He did a meticulous amount of research to be able to put this account together for us. And so all the details that we see tonight as we look through this chapter, they all matter. It's all really, really intentional. I, I love that. But Zechariah and Elizabeth... A couple of things that we see here. First, uh, Zechariah is a priest. Now, don't think like great high priest. Don't think high priest at all, because that's not Zechariah. He is what we would call a common priest. He was one of probably about 18,000 of, of these common priests, okay? So nothing too spectacular. If you're kind of thinking about this in modern day ways, think about uh, a small country church small country pastor, maybe of like 50 people. This guy probably had a full-time job. He was doing the priest thing on the side. This would have been Zechariah, all right? Very simple man, very basic guy. Uh, you know, he lived a simple life, and you know what's amazing? Like, he made the Bible. <laughs> incredible? Like, he really didn't do anything spectacular, but like, he made the Bible. Why? He loved the Lord, he served the Lord, he walked with the Lord. That's why. And, uh, and this is incredible. We, we see uh, at the end of verse 7, one more thing about him. Um, it says, he and Elizabeth were both advanced in years, which uh, that's just the Bible's way of politely saying they were old. 
Like, they were old. That's what it means. It means they were old. So they were, uh, they were godly. They, they loved to follow the Lord. They were believers. They were walking blamelessly. Uh, they were old. And uh, notice what else Luke tells us here in verse 7. But they had no child. They had no children. Elizabeth was barren. She was never able to conceive. And now at this point in the story, she was well beyond childbearing years. And you know, you don't, you don't have to be a, a Christian. You don't even have to be a history major to understand um, what that probably meant for somebody in the first century in that type of culture that worships, almost praises um, family and ch- having children and what that meant, a culture that in so many different ways kind of said having children and, and kind of having a lot of children, that is where you found your identity. That is where you found your worth. That is where you found your meaning. This is what it means to actually be a man or be a woman. This is how God blesses you. This is how you're going to be provided for in the future. This would not only be this would not only be devastating for this family, this would be shameful. You have to understand that. For like the people of Israel, this would have been like, there's something wrong. There's something we don't know about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Like they must be hiding something. There must be some kind of hidden sin because if God really loved them, if they, were, if they were as righteous and if they were as obedient as we thought, they would have children, but they don't. In fact, even the, even the way that Luke writes this here, it's almost intentional, the stark contrast between verses 6 and 7. Do you see that? I mean, it says they're righteous, they're walking blamelessly, they love the Lord, but they had no children. It's written really in a way that's supposed to make us stop. It's meant to make us pause and ask, wait, why? Like, why would that be the case? And you can probably imagine what both of them are feeling, too. I mean, God, we're doing everything that you asked us to do. Not only have we been doing it for years, we have been doing it for decades, yet this one area of life that seems to really matter to us, this one area of life that seems most important, well, it seems like you're kind of holding out on us, God. You see, this is actually the point of the story where I feel like, um, I don't know, most of you can probably really resonate with this. Maybe it's not infertility, Although for some of you, that may be a real struggle, and we understand the, the tremendous and emotional challenge that is. But for all of us, married, single, really anybody, all of you know what this feels like. If, if the one thing that you really care about, if the one thing that weighs so heavily on you, that feels more important, more significant, more defining than any other thing in the entirety of your life right now, if that's not what you want it to be, or, or, or where you want it to be, I mean, it's easy to feel like not only that God is, has forgotten you, but that he's set against you. I mean, I was even thinking about that um, today as I've just been kind of meditating on this passage and just like trying to make it personal within my, whole, my own life. And I feel like even as I look at verse 7 here, it'd be really easy just to remove that word child from verse 7 and replace it with a whole list of other words. I'm righteous before God, I'm walking in faith, but I still have no, boom, fill in the blank. In fact, what is it that you are tempted to put in that blank? What is it that you're inclined to use to finish that sentence? I'm walking in faith, I feel like I'm righteous before God, but I still have no, what? 
boyfriend, money, dream job that wakes me up in the morning, sense of normalcy with my family or friendships. I mean, some of you, you'd probably even, if you're just being honest with yourself, say, I just have no real sense of a hunger or, or a thirst for God. I find myself in a season where I don't really crave a relationship with my creator. And you don't even have to imagine what Zechariah and Elizabeth are feeling here. I mean, you know what it's like. My life isn't what I wanted to be. God seems silent. I'm struggling to believe. It's easy to doubt. Friends, I, I know some of you are bitter. Some of you are angry. Some of you, maybe even right now, are just confused. I know that's not everybody tonight, but if that's you, I, I want you to first just to hear, like, I'm really glad that you're with us this evening. I'm really glad that you're present. I feel like that's an important thing for you to know um, because you might currently be walking through the unfairness of life. And it's easy to feel like you're the only one. It's easy to feel like that your situation is uniquely difficult. It's easy to feel like nobody else understands you or what you're going through. And I don't doubt that you have all kinds of reasons, legitimate reasons to feel the way that you do, to feel the way you do towards your family, to feel the way you do towards a church, the way you feel towards God. But you know what? You know why this story is so helpful? You know why this... This story is so good for us tonight because it shows us on one hand that none of us, none of us is immune to disappointment and doubt. Like we're all prone to skepticism when our circumstances are what we want them to be. But in Advent, here's the great news. In Advent, we find commonality with those who are familiar with waiting and disappointment. We're placing ourselves inside of a greater story, a story that the people have really just been, it's marked the people of God for centuries. Because for centuries, the people of God have asked, what does it look like to wait and to wonder and to wrestle with God when life seems unfair? Now, you know what that means practically? I mean, just very, very practically, as I've been thinking about this uh, this week, on one hand, it means that we're just not surprised when this is the case in your life. Like, for example, we're not surprised by your doubts. We're not surprised by your disappointments. We're not even caught off guard by your lack of faith. I mean, I can't tell you how many people in the last two or three months I've had conversations with, and it's almost comical because almost every single person I talk to about this starts off the exact same way. You've probably never met anybody like me. I've got a lot of questions, and me, and God, and the church, we kind of have this unique history. And I'm like, yes, I have met somebody like you. I've met lots of people. I've met dozens of people like you. And if that's you tonight, I'm, like, I'm really glad that you're here. I am. I'm, I think this is a great place for you to be. But I don't know. Don't give yourself so much credit. Like you're not the first person who's ever walked through life who's had doubts with God and disappointments with life circumstances. No, like we, we're actually, we are the, the people of God. We are the first people to admit we live in a broken world. Sin, like it still sucks. We've rebelled against a God. We've rebelled against our creator. We've chosen to worship his creation to try to fill the deepest longings of our heart. And yeah, like, we're not surprised at all when life is unfair, unfair and you're left disappointed. Like, you need to know that. This is a good place for you to be if that's the case. But here's the thing. Like, here's, 
Here's what distinguishes us as the people of God. Here's what distinguishes us as followers of Jesus, that when, we're, when we find ourselves traveling through the unfairness of life, when we see ourselves going through times of despair, as the people of God, we know that we're not obligated to stay there. But we actually ask the question, where is it that we take our doubts? Where is it that we turn to? Who is it that we take our disappointment to? Let's continue this story and see what Zechariah and Elizabeth did. I think this is great. I think this is so encouraging as we continue to read this. Look at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. All right, so here's what's going on. Um, twice a year, priests like Zechariah were called up to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And, uh, and basically at this time, they had the responsibility to practice their priestly duties. So there was all kinds of public praying and offering sacrifices and hosting festivals and things like that, things that just kind of came with the territory of being a priest. And... Uh, most of what they did was, I mean, it was important work. It wasn't anything that spectacular, um, but it was important. Yet there was one person selected every year, one, one priest who was chosen basically by the roll of the dice. Uh, their name would come up, and they were selected to actually enter into the temple to go before the presence of God to offer uh, incense and pray. And, uh, and that was kind of a big deal. That was, that was kind of like the highlight of any priest career, okay? This would be like a once-in-a-lifetime type of experience, and once you did it, you were done. You were never selected to do it after that, and, uh, and it would be really easy to actually go your entire life without doing this. Now, um, in fact, I was thinking about that this morning. This would almost be like if you were the guy who got to parachute the football into the Super Bowl stadium, all right? That's how big of a deal this is. Like, that'd be like once and done, you know? And, and this is Zachariah's big day. The dice were rolled. His name came up. He had been coming to the temple probably for 40, 50, 60 years, and uh, his name was never chosen. But today was the day his name was selected. And, uh, and so what happens? Well, he goes into the temple here. We see that he begins to burn the incense. He's beginning to pray. And then what happens in verse 12? I love this. In verse 11, actually. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Which, that's actually a very natural response to anyone who ever has encountered an angel in the Bible. A lot of times today, I mean, I, I tend to think that we think of angels as like, I don't know, some like Morgan Freeman character standing next to us in an elevator talking coolly. And that's just not it. Like anybody who's ever met an angel in the Bible, it's always like instant fear, instant terror, uh, freaking out. And uh, so that's even why, the, what does the, uh, the angel say to him? Very, the very next words there. Verse, uh, what is it? 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid. That's like the standard angel greeting to anybody. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For, now this is so important. In fact, this next phrase, I love this. This is actually, I think, my favorite part of the entire first portion of Luke. And it's so easy for us to miss this. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. For years, you have been praying. For years, you have been asking. For years, even when God seemed silent and God seemed distant and God seemed uninterested, your prayer 
has been heard. Now, for me, I mean, I feel like that would almost be enough. Like, just to know, like, your prayer has been heard. Like, not even answered, but just, like, it was heard. Like, wouldn't it be incredible if you got some type of automatic email confirmation after every prayer? Like, thank you, Andy. Your prayer has been received, and it has been heard. Like, that would be so incredible. Think about, This is, like, profoundly encouraging to us. Our prayers have been heard by the creator God of the universe. I mean, Zechariah, in, in this passage, we don't even know exactly what it was that he was praying for. We have like a really good, I think, healthy, educated guess, uh, judging from the rest of this story in the context here. We know in part he was probably praying for the people of Israel. We know in part he was probably praying and asking God to send the promised Messiah to rescue us from our sin, to deliver us from our sin, and bring us back into relationship with God. But you know, from everything else I can deduct from this passage, it looks like Zechariah went for it. I mean, it looks like after praying a prayer that he started in his 20s and then began to continue that into his 30s, that he and Elizabeth, for good humor, maybe asked in their 40s and their 50s, it looks like from all that I can tell that Zechariah said, you know what, I might as well go big here. I've got nothing to lose. Might as well ask for the impossible to pray for something that only God is capable of delivering on. God, please give us a child. Which I think is probably a good opportunity to pause and just ask what is the impossible that you're praying for right now? What are the things right now that you are pleading with God for that only he is capable of delivering on? This isn't meant to, this is only meant to encourage you. This isn't meant to guilt you into examining your prayer life. I'm just asking, like, what are the things right now, what are the things that you are pleading with God, begging him, knowing that he is the only one capable of delivering on? This story is meant to encourage us, friends. You're meant to look at a man and a woman who for decades refused to relent before God. They patiently, consistently, passionately pled with God to provide. And in the meantime, what did they do? They trusted him, they loved him, they served him, they walked with him. This should be an encouragement to all of us tonight, particularly those of you who find yourselves on the verge or, or maybe... Maybe, you're already, maybe you've already given up when it comes to your faith, when it comes to your relationship with God. For those of you who are on the verge or those of you who have already taken that step away and say, I just don't know if I can believe anymore. This is meant to serve as an encouragement. The entire season of Advent is meant to be a reminder to us that our God, I know this is hard to believe at times, but our God is a good father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. It's meant to encourage us. And the angel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. And you have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Not just you, but many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, saying, listen, this is what your son's going to do. You're getting way much more than you bargained for. You're getting way more than you anticipated. You're not just getting a child. You are getting one who will lead and spark one of the largest revivals that you've ever seen. 
He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's saying basically, in the same way that Elijah was a prophet, your son's going to be a prophet. In the same way Elijah was filled with the spirit of God, your son's going to be filled with the spirit of God to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That means there's going to be a softening of our hearts, to, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That means there's going to be awakening within our minds to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Zechariah? I mean, his big, big day was just going into the temple, saying a prayer, burning some incense, and then walking out. And suddenly he encounters this angel making extraordinary claims about the one thing that has been missing for all of Zechariah and Elizabeth's adult life. Man. Now, I understand. For some of you here today, like some of you, I know, some of you just need to hear the promises of God. Some of you just need to hear that God is for you, that God has heard you, God has not checked out, he has not forgotten, but he knows. You need to be reminded that he knows what you're going through. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're missing right now or missing out on right now. He knows what you wish was different. He knows what you wish was better. He knows what you wish were gone. He knows all of that. And he has heard you cry out. And I hope that this Advent season is a reminder to you. This Advent would remind you time and time and time again. He has heard and he knows. That should be an encouragement. Others of you, I recognize, probably many of you, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you grew up around a lot of this. So when it comes to the, the promises of God, maybe these aren't new to you. Maybe a lot of these promises of God, that God is seeking our welfare and seeking our joy, a lot of those you probably even have memorized. And it's easy for you just to kind of scoff. Particularly when you kind of pit those promises against the current circumstances of your life. When you look at what God says and when you look at your reality, I mean, it's easy just to say that's just not the case for me. In fact, many of you tonight, you probably resonate a little bit more with Zechariah like 15 minutes before he went into the temple. You're like, I can really track with the pre-temple experience Zechariah. Like, that's the guy I'm familiar with. That's the experiences I know because I've yet to have the your prayer has been answered type of response from God. And I recognize the last thing that you would want someone like for me to do is to come up here and just say, well, as long as you just have more faith, as long as you have better faith, as long as you just believe more, everything's going to turn out all right. Because you know that would be doing a tremendous disservice not only to you, but also to God. No. No. What you need is for someone to come alongside you or an entire people to come alongside you. To say, I understand that it is difficult. I understand that it is challenging. I understand that you feel lonely and forgotten. And that's hard. But you know what? If that's where you find yourself tonight, you're not actually that much different than Zechariah. You really aren't. I mean, I, I love this story because I feel like it gives us the true and raw expression of people, people who don't have perfect faith. Because, I mean, just look at this. Like, look at Zechariah's response here. Uh, Zechariah, immediately after encountering an angel, like, 
An, if you're looking for evidence, if you're looking at, for proof here, an angel, a, a clearly non-human heavenly messenger sent from God who makes the most extraordinary claim, life-changing promise to Zechariah about the very thing that Zechariah's been praying for for decades. What does Zechariah do here? Well, he does what most men do. He opened his mouth. He began talking. That was his first mistake. Like that was like that's where he went wrong. Like he began talking. He should have just shut up. He should have just been like fist pumping the air, like a yeah, like I'm gonna have a baby and give like a manly hug to the angel and just been like see a man and walk out and rejoice. But what did he do? He started talking, and that's where he got himself in trouble. Look at verse 18 here. I love this. Zechariah said to the angel, well, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel's like, really? Really? I didn't know that. I, I, you know, what, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell. Like the white hair, and you're kind of bent over. You're walking with a cane. I didn't realize you were old. And I love even how Zechariah describes his wife here. She is uh, advanced in years. He's being polite. He kind of knows. Like These things have a way of being written down and recorded in books, read out loud thousands of years later. I'm going to be careful in the words that I choose here. And then look at what Gabriel said. The angel, I love this. This is so good. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Meaning, you know where I was about 15 minutes ago? I was literally standing in the presence of Yahweh, the creator God of this universe, until he made me come down here to you. So you're going to stop talking. Like you're going to shut up now. That's my paraphrase of verse 20. He says, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because why? You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled when? In their time. In fact, why don't we all just repeat those last three words together tonight? In their time. My words will be fulfilled in their time. Advent, friends, is a season that reminds us what it's like as the people of God to patiently wait for our God to deliver on his promises. That is the good news of Advent. I love, I mean, this story just ends in such a beautiful way. Eventually, uh, Zechariah leaves the temple, and he basically just has to communicate to everybody there who's watching, like, hey, this is what happened. I encountered an angel. He's doing it by sign language, essentially, and they kind of figure it out. Verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, this is so beautiful, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I heard someone say once, uh, for five months, Elizabeth was at home praying to God, saying, Thank you, Lord, for this baby, and thank you for this mute husband. All my prayers have been answered. Nothing could be better. <laughs> you know what's the best news of this story, though? In verse 25, when Elizabeth says here, the Lord has looked on me and he has taken away my reproach among people. You see, on one hand, yes, this is a, this is a beautiful story. This is an encouragement to us. This is a, just a reminder of God's faithfulness to us. Um, you know, particularly those, for those of us who do not have perfect faith. That's the reminder that we see here tonight is, as God is caring. And I, mean, I hope you see, like many of you still think it's so easy for you. You're tempted to believe that if I just believe more, if I just pray more, if I just have greater faith, if I just have more faith, then God will bless me. Then God will use me. Then God will provide for me. I hope Advent reminds you, friends, that God has chosen to be faithful towards you in spite of your faithlessness. And that is good news. 
man, it's good news. The victory has already been won. It's not about what you're doing. This whole story is about God, what God has done, what God continues to do, what God will do for all of us. None of us comes to God with perfect faith. None of us comes to God with the perfect amount of faith. No, but we come and we place our faith in the perfect person, Christ himself. So yes, this is a story that's meant to encourage us and challenge us to be reminded of God's provision and his love and his faithfulness towards us, but it's more than that because this is just the very beginning. This is like Luke 1 is the warm-up act. It is the opening act of what God is about to do within human history. It's, it's like the reawakening of God's people to the grandeur and the majesty of our creator God. And I love it. Because this birth, this miraculous birth of John the Baptist, I mean, yes, it will take away the reproach of a mother. It will bring joy to a father. And and yes, John the Baptist, he will be a man who begins to lead thousands of other men and women to Christ. But you know what it's doing? It's pointing us forward to another miraculous birth that we'll see in the coming weeks, the, the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, we will see that it's more than just bringing joy to a father. It's more than just the reproach of a mother. But it's a man who will live and die for us so that the shame and the guilt and the sin and the reproach of all mankind will be alleviated. And that is good news. That is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus steps out of heaven and into human history, born as a baby, so that he can love and that he can serve and that he can ultimately go to the cross to die on our behalf, reconciling us back to God. And in that, we see the reminder of Advent. We see Advent helping distract us from all of the noise of Christmas, for Advent to pull us away from all of the chaos of the holiday season and to point us back towards Jesus Christ himself, the one the only one who can truly satisfy us as we walk through a season of unfairness, as we walk through life's disappointments, as we walk through all the challenges of discouragement, that it'll be Jesus the one who can actually truly provide for us. As we wrap up tonight, as we finish, um, here's what I want to do for us this evening. I really just want to pray over you a passage of scripture from Isaiah 25. This is actually a, a passage written hundreds of years prior to the birth of John or Jesus in anticipation of this day. For the people of God, it was a reminder of what it's like to wait for the Lord to provide. And I just want to finish with this tonight, and uh, I want to pray over us. So this might even be a good opportunity for you just to even close your eyes and receive this as we uh, prepare to continue to respond through worship. Father God, we're reminded this evening of the words from Isaiah 25 that say, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his 
salvation. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for even this season of Advent. The reminder that it is your faithfulness towards us, even at our lack of faith, that is an encouragement, that is a hope, that is a reminder of how good and gracious you are. God, we know it. And during a season like this, for many of us here tonight, this is not a season that we walk through uh, very easily or very joyfully, but it's often a painful reminder of the circumstances surrounding us right now that often feel unfair and often feel depressing. And God, I just pray for those men and women here tonight, for the men and women here tonight who are struggling to believe, who feel disappointed, who feel discouraged, or who are just walking through sadness right now. God, it is my prayer that during this Advent season, you would provide hope, and you would provide confidence, and you would just increase our faith that you are a good father that loves his children. I pray that we would remember that. For others, I pray that this would just be a season that, oh God, that we just don't get so wrapped up in all the chaos and all the holiday traditions that we neglect our first love, and that is you. That we'd be reminded of what you have done on our behalf. That our eyes would be fixed on you. Let this be a time and a season, God, that we worship you well as your people. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.